hear these words from the book that we love. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Joksan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lumim. Excuse me. The sons of Midian were Epa, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their, their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is uh, Stephen Wood. I'm uh, a pastor on staff here at Liberty. Uh, the, uh, this past week, there was a memorial service uh, for Tim Keller, who was a, a pastor in our denomination in the PCA uh, for, for many years, and really one of the most influential pastors in our denomination um, over the past 20, 30 years. And uh, Keller was, um, he was... Uh, and of course, like, there are many in this room who, there's some in this room who know Keller personally. Many I know who've been influenced by his books. Uh, I would say for, for me personally, and like peek behind this pulpit here, it's like, his, there's, no, I, there's no other non-liberty pastor that I've been formed more by than Tim Keller. Um, his, his sermons, his books, his voice. There are times like when I preach, I try to conceal the fact that I'm quoting him because I quote him so much. And there, I know there are some of you who are like, it's like another Tim Keller quote. Uh, Tim Keller was uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in May 2020 at the age of 69. And he, uh, God gave him three years. He lived, um, had lived until May 2023. Uh, and uh, over 2,000 people just this past week attended his memorial service in New York City. And uh, over 10,000 people watched the live stream online. Uh, back in in January, uh, Keller appeared on uh, one of my favorite podcasts. It's called The Unbelievable Podcast. It's one of his last, really one of his last public interviews. And uh, they asked him a number of questions over the hour. But the, the most moving part of the interview for me was just Tim, Tim Keller's personal update at the start of the podcast. They were just asked, hey, how are you doing? How's your health? And he shared, he shared that his life, his prayer, his marriage, 
his relationship with his, with his sons and grandchildren, everything in his life had become so much richer after he realized that he was going to die. And he, he recounts how he didn't, it didn't really click in for him that he was going to die until in May 2020, he sat across from a doctor who told him that he had pancreatic cancer and the doctor said, this is going to kill you. Either sooner or later, this is going to kill you. And he had had, you know, he had suffered previously. He had thyroid cancer in his early 50s. But he said there was something about that that just clarified for him, even though he'd been preaching it for years about the necessity of counting your days and knowing you're, that you're going to die. It clicked in for him at that, at that time. And it just gave him relief and clarity, truly knowing that he would die. And in the interview, you can even hear it in his tone. Like the, the interviewer, his name is Justin Brierly, asked him like, hey, how has it been for you with your diminished capacities? Like you can't speak as much as you used to. You can't be writing as much as you used to. You can't be going to all these things as much as you used to. How's, how's it been? And Keller, again, just a few months before he dies, Keller's like, Justin, it's been great. And uh, as if to say like, Real, he realized because he was going to die, he realized, man, I've spent decades of my life just, do, just seeking to please people with my time instead of seeking to honor and please God and enjoying communion with him. And, and this was, again, because of the clarity and knowing that he was going to die. And some of Keller's final, some of his final words on the day that he died, his family recounts, were, I'm ready to see Jesus Send me home. And like in an age where there are podcasts and long form pieces on all these strings of evangelical pastors who are power hungry, who take advantage of others, like for me, like the end of Keller's life, it's just an amazing witness. He, he was prepared to die. He lived a full life, like he was ready. And in our passage today, we see a man who we've been following for many chapters now, Abraham. We've been following him since chapter 11. It's been a long journey. Today, the journey for Abraham comes to an end. And he's a man, and this, is, this, this Sunday, we're going to wrap up for the time being, our time in Genesis. Again, it's been quite a journey with you all. We've been plugging away in Genesis for a long time. And we see that Abraham, like I've been talking about Tim Keller, he was a man who was ready to die at the end of living a full life. And I want to draw your attention to two points today from this passage as we look at the end of Abraham's life and as we face our own, as we face the end of our own lives. The first is that we prepare. We prepare for, for our own deaths. And the second is that God perfects or he makes complete. We prepare, God perfects. So first off, we prepare. So we know according to the, the numbers, the age at which Abraham dies, the age at which his wife Sarah dies, that Abraham lives almost 40 years after Sarah dies. And in the, ch the, the chapter I preached on a couple weeks ago, chapter 24, and this chapter, we can see that Abraham's not been idle in his final years. He hasn't just been, been sitting on his hands, but he's continued to be fruitful. He's continued to prepare and he's been preparing for his death and handing off the reins to those who are going to come after him. Um, in the last chapter I preached on, chapter 24, he sends a servant on a mission to secure the future of his line and try and find a, a wife for his son Isaac. And we saw how God really guided that mission. 
And in this passage, the beginning of this, it opens with Abraham taking another wife named Keturah and having six sons by her. And the passage notes some of the names of his grandsons by Keturah here, here too. And I don't know about you, but it's, it's, it's kind of jostling to see this guy who would have been quite senior getting remarried and having more kids. Uh, and that's a question that commentators have wrestled with for a long time. Like, why, what's going on here? Why did Abraham remarry? I think it, part of the reason that th- this is in here in the text is something we've seen so far in Genesis, which is that it shows us how nations spin off of Abraham's line. And like some of these, are, are these nations, particularly looking at verses 1 through 6, they end up being nations around Israel throughout the rest of the story of Genesis. So Midian is a key one, is, is, is a, a key neighbor that features in, in uh, Exodus and beyond. Um, and other nations is qualifies too. So it helps the, the, the first readers, the first listeners to this text to know like the nations around them being their distant cousins. Uh, but what, like, so that's part of the reason why, you know, Abraham's remarrying and th- this is why the text is including it. I would also just say the first command that God gave to humans was to be fruitful and multiply. God had also told Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. We see that literally happening in this passage. Uh, and in Scripture, there's also throughout Scripture, like children are unanimously considered to be blessings from the Lord. So it, Abra- Abraham taking on another wife, it's, I, uh, some commentators look at it in a really, really negative way. I kind of tend to view it as, as kind of a neutral thing. It's, it's Abraham continuing to be fruitful in the last years before he dies. And we also see that Abraham, he's not just mindlessly having children. Uh, he's not just uh, trying to make things easy and comfortable for himself, but he has a plan. He's preparing what he will leave behind. You see this in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. He gave everything he had to Isaac. So even late in his life, Abraham is preparing things for the line chosen by God, which is, the line, which is through Isaac. He's preparing, he's setting him up, the one through whom the promises will come. But he also gives gifts to his other sons, and he sends them east where they can plant their own flags, found their own nations. Uh, he, he blesses them as they go while carving out space for Isaac. So if Abraham was, if there was a, a show made about like the end of Abraham's life, like Abraham did accumulate a lot of stuff by the end of his life. So, you know, think of like the, I've never seen this show. Um, I've heard it's good. Uh, the, the show Succession. Like imagine, here's like the, the, the things that Abraham craftily does at the end of his life. All the, he holds all these things together at once in his finding, final planning and preparation for his death. He loves all his sons. He gives them all something. He sends them all. He also maintains the priority among the sons that God had established, giving everything he had to Isaac and giving Isaac space in the land of promise. And he also sets all of his sons up in their own lanes after he dies, which is quite a masterwork in succession planning, if you think about it. And we even see a rare, this, this special glimmer of peace among brothers between Isaac and Ishmael as the two of them together bury their son, their, their father, Abraham, which brothers in Genesis are almost always fighting, like from the beginning to the, like Cain and Abel on. So it's just this special glimmer of how Abraham's actually paved the way for there to be peace among his sons. So the, the image that you see here at the end of Abraham's life 
a man in his waning years. This is a man who has embraced that he is going to die. A man that makes preparations for his own death. Um, and I, I forgot to mention, a preparation he made for his own death was the, the passage that Victor Kim preached on a few weeks ago, which was him buying this land in, from Ephron the Hittite to prepare for Sarah and him to be buried there. He was very much preparing for it. But he's, all, and he's also a man who's preparing a blessed future for those who are going to come after him. Um, and he all, it's, it's also clear from this text that he lived a full life, a rich life. And uh, there's a Woody Allen, the, the filmmaker, he has this, this quote where he says, he says, I'm not afraid of my death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And uh, you can see with Abraham's death, the moment of his death, it isn't like that. Then in verses 7 through 10, some of the repetition that we see in verses 7 through 10 shows us that he's a man who goes to rest in peace. Here's some of the repetition you can see. Uh, Just feel the fullness and the completion. It says, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life. It's really emphasizing time, length of time. He lived 175 years. He died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. There's just this repetition is really driving home that he, he lived a full life and he was going to rest. And at this point in scripture, what happens after death is still, it's still murky. You know, the, the passages about the new creation, the new earth, about resurrection, those come further to the right in our Bibles. But in this passage, it's really assumed, you can tell in this, this verses 7 through 10, that death is not something for Abraham to rage against, to rage against the dying of the light, but it's something, it's a final completing note on a, life of, a lifetime of faithfulness. It's not something to, to be terrified of, but something to be embraced for those who have been following the Lord in faith. That's Abraham. That's his death. That's his preparation. That's the fullness of his life. What about you? What about us as we face our own deaths? Uh, my guess is in this room is that there would be three separate camps of how we view our own deaths. The first group, I'm going to put myself in this group. The first group are people in this room where you don't, like your death isn't something you think about much, if at all. And maybe it's somebody who just feels so far away, so far removed from you, you don't really think about it much. Um, like I said, I'll count myself in this camp. Um, I, I've heard that there's like that young men and the, some of you medical professionals can like, can confirm or deny this for me after the service is, uh, I've heard that like young men have some kind of hormone where they feel like they're just totally invincible. I don't know if you've ever heard that. And, uh, even though I think I'm in the twilight of these stage of not thinking much about my death, if you ever saw me riding my bike down Gerard Ave, you'd be like, yeah, that guy, he's, he's not thinking much about his own death. Like... Uh, and if such a hormone exists, I still have some of it. Uh, but I would say I'm starting to shade into the second camp. The second camp. I think the second camp is probably the most represented camp in this room as we view our own deaths. The second camp. You don't obsess over your death, but as you look at your life, you're realizing that you have fewer and fewer options available to you with the time that you have. Which is to say, death may not be right up in your face, but you can see it in the distance and you can see that you don't, 
that the days of limitless possibilities, you know, are gone. In fact, as your options have become more limited, you may be sitting here this morning and you may be looking at your life and you may be saying, my life isn't what I hoped it would be. And some of that is confrontation with death, with your death. You may be reaching the point where you fear the best of your life may be behind you. That's the second camp. Uh, The third group, third camp, you are quite aware that you are going to die and that it could be soon. Uh, Whenever you go to the doctor, you may think to yourself, this could be the doc, like this could be the visit where like the curtain starts to fall. Like you, you, you know, it's, it's, it's something that could be close by. And I, and I would say for the third camp, like definitely the youngest people tend to be in the first group. Folks who are either early middle age or towards middle age are in the second group, and usually those who are older in the third group. But I don't think these camps are constrained by age. I, like, I know some friends who are my age who would be close to the third camp, be, you know, scared of scans and doctor's visits. Um, I would think for all three of those camps here this morning, Abraham's example of preparation for death, there are invitations to each of us to prepare for our own deaths. To the first camp, to those who ride their bikes on Gerard Ave like I do. Uh, the first camp, I would say, we look at Abraham. In faith, Abraham built something to pass on. He built a family. He gained possessions, which he handed off to Isaac, which he handed off his gifts to his other sons. And like to the first camp, I think the invitation as we end the life of Abraham, as we reflect on his death, is I would ask you, what do you want to leave behind when you die? Whatever, you, like, whatever great thing God could be calling you to, to build, it's going to take years to do. How, what do you want to spend your life building? How are you going to build something not just for your own pleasure, but to bless the world in Jesus' name? Um, your time, you who are with me in the first camp, your time is finite. Remember the freedom that Keller found and truly realizing that he was going to die. With this, I think this is embedded in the invitation. What are the frivolous things that God could be calling you to lay aside as you seek to follow him for the rest of your days? Second camp. Second camp. As you look at the life of Abraham far more important than the possessions that he gathered, far more important than what he built, was who he passed it on to. And for those of you in the second camp who are just feeling like your your life is becoming more and more limited, I would guess that a big reason why your life is starting to feel more limited is because of the, the people that God has placed in your life for you to be taken care of or for you to be loving. Like a key part of the limitations are the fact that you have to be taking care of your aging parents, that you have to be loving your, loving your spouse, and, that you have, and of course the big one, that you have to be taking care of your kids. For you, I would say, the very things that are limiting your life are probably the people that God's calling you to love the most. And I would, I, to, that, to this group, I would say, and think again, this is of Abraham's example of his Focus in, his, in, in his, the, the last third of his life on preparing the way for the people who are going to come after him. 
to use the second group, I would say, to those of you who feel my life isn't what I hoped it would be, what I expected it would be, I would say, what are some of the ways that you need to release, lay down before God's throne today the expectation that your life was supposed to be different? And what would it look like to actually embrace the people, the places, the limitations that God has put in front of you and to joyfully run after those things with the life that we have? What, like, what would it, what if we joyfully, like, it, a full life, a full life, like Abraham has, this, these refrains we hear about Abraham's life, a full life is never an easy life. Abraham did not live a charmed life. Like, let's view the remainder of our days that God has given us to pour ourselves out for the people that God has given us. Like, let's, my invitation to you in the second group is, like, let's go down swinging. Let's, let's like, reconcile with our enemies. Let's be affectionate for, towards our kids. Let's welcome new people that God puts in front of us. Let's worship the Lord. Um, we aren't going to, if we get to heaven one day and we have fewer scars, we're not going to get bonus points. Uh, actually, the guy in charge in heaven has scars, and the scars are his glory. To camp number three, Abraham treated his final years as an opportunity, not as a death march. It's wise for us to count our years. If you ever, Psalm 90 is all about that, a great, sobering psalm. It's wise to number our days, uh, but it's a sin to despair. Uh, I once heard uh, it said at a ministry conference that for, for ministers, their most influential years are between the ages of 50 and 65, or really just 50 and beyond. They're the years where they really set up and pour into the generation that's going to come after them. And I think there's a principle there to embrace for those of you who could be in the third camp as you face your death. I've got good, good news to those of you who would consider yourselves in the third camp. The generations beneath you are as directionless as ever, and they, we, need your help. Bad news, though. You complaining about them won't give them the discipleship that they need. And I would tell you, there's, for me, there's nothing more encouraging than someone in the twilight of their lives seeking to follow Christ, seeking to grow in Christ. And you may, you in the third camp, you may feel like physically powerless now, maybe even like mentally not where you once were. But I would encourage you, like in Christ, you have immense spiritual power, immense. People who are in the third camp, more than where I am in my life right now, you could make a phone call to someone in your life that could change their lives. To, like, you could make a call to someone, and probably the thing that you say to them that would change their lives would be you repenting, probably. But you could change someone's life in a way that I don't think those of us who are younger could. You have immense spiritual power. Treat, like Abraham, it wasn't just a death march for him. It was a, a time of setting up the, the next generation. What would it look like for you to do that? But of course, the point of this passage, it isn't primarily just for us to live full lives or to prepare for our deaths, but to see how God perfects and brings things to their 
desired, to their goal, to their intended goal. And by God perfects, I, I don't mean that he makes everything instantly perfect and amazing. By God, I mean perfects in the old sense. By he brings things to completion. That's another word, meaning for the word perfect. God perfects, my second point. A lot of things are left unfinished at the time of Abraham's death. Uh, great promises that God had made to Abraham specifically remain unfulfilled. God had promised him land, but Abraham dies with just a small burial plot that he bought from the Hittites for an exorbitant sum. That's all that he's left with. God had promised that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we see a multitude of nations coming from him, but we don't see all the nations of the earth being blessed. God had promised in chapter 22 that the gates of Abraham's enemies would not prevail against him. Where's that? Abraham dies without having seen many of God's words about him come to pass. Much is left unfinished. And more than that, we actually get hints in this passage that God's chosen line, the one through whom these promises will be fulfilled, we get hints that they're kind of lagging behind the nations around them. In verses, we, the end of this passage is about uh, the, the fate of, of Ishmael and his sons, and we see God fulfills his promises that he made to Ishmael in earlier chapters. Ishmael ends up being the, the, he ends up having 12 sons who become princes, who are ruling. And the number 12 should ring bells for those of you who, who maybe are more familiar with the story of Genesis and the rest of the Bible. You know, the, the number 12 is that. Jacob, in a few generations, is the one who has 12 sons who end up becoming the 12 tribes of the heads of, or the 12 tribes of Israel who then rule. Like, there's ways in which Ishmael, the one who's not the chosen line, who's outside, he's it, like a nation's coming off of great nations are coming off of him, and they're ruling. But if you keep reading, you'll see that Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is barren, and like the chosen line just keeps hitting wall after wall, after wall. There, it seems like not like not only are things untied, loose, at, when Abraham dies, but the, the future remains in peril. It's this thing we've encountered time and time again with the, with the, in the life of Abraham, is that the whole, th- like, the, God's promises seems all, seem to always be on a razor's edge. And when we die, the same will be said. The same will be said. It will be said, there was more work that needed to be done when each and every one of us die. There were conversations that we should have had that we didn't have time to have or we didn't make the time to have. There will be opportunities that we passed up. There will be generations after us that we had not properly prepared because we didn't go out of our way to disciple and prepare them. When all of us die, we leave behind a mess. Literally and figuratively, all of us leave behind a mess. And in a lot of ways, Abraham left behind a mess. But for Abraham and for us, God perfects the future. God holds the future in his hands. He holds your future in his hands. Did you see that little line in verse 11? After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, Just because Abraham, the faithful one, has died does not mean that God has stopped being faithful or that his plans are wrecked. Abraham, even though he seemed like an indispensable man, is not indispensable. There are no indispensable people. 
in God's plan. God holds the future in his hands, not us. And as we keep reading scripture, we see that the promises of God for Abraham are taken up in full by his distant son, Jesus. Jesus is called Abraham's seed, his offspring in the New Testament. He's the one who inherits and completes the promises made to Abraham. Through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave and his sending out of his disciples into all the world, all the nations are blessed. The promise to Abraham is fulfilled. Through Jesus' death um, and in re- through his death and his resurrection, his triumph, like Abraham's seed does prevail against the gate of his enemies. Jesus overcomes death itself, the greatest enemy. God takes the untied threads at Abraham's death and ties them together and completes them, perfects them in Jesus Christ. And because of Christ, the promises for Abraham now apply to us. Through faith in Jesus, we're united with with Jesus. We are sons of Abraham. We are inheritors of all that God promised to Abraham. So if you want proof that God perfects the future, that the promises to Abraham have not been, are not, have not been discarded, the proof is right around you. It's us here today, thousands of years later, on the other side of the globe, being blessed through Christ by Abraham. All the nations will be blessed. We're the proof. And if God perfected things from the life of Abraham, a story that was wearying, a story that was inspirational at times for sure, a story that was filled with sin. There was sin in this story. If he could, do, if he could perfect things with such a story, then surely he'll bring new life out of the mess that we leave behind too, right? And this is why when I invite us to prepare for our deaths, we can do so with hope, not as anxious perfectionists trying to make sure everything is perfectly set up for when we die. As I said when I preached on, God, on Genesis 24, God secures the future. And if your takeaway from this sermon is like, hey, I have to perfectly get my 401k in order, I have to secure my children's salvation, I have to have, like, finish off my grand professional projects, I have to make sure all my conflicts are perfectly resolved, if that's what you're hearing, I think you're really missing the point and the good news in this chapter, which is that God controls the future And God's trusting that God is sovereign over the future and he's guiding things towards his own end. Like that's actually actually the basis of our work, the basis of us preparing. Because if God wasn't bringing things to the end that he was desired, that, that, that he wanted, then all our efforts would just pass into nothingness, right? All the good things that we do in this world in Jesus' name would ultimately be meaningless if we didn't trust that God was the one who controlled the future, but also God's control of the future, it's the basis of our rest. Especially the rest that we will pass into when we fall asleep in Christ, when we die. Let's go to rest. Let's, let's, know, our, let's know that we're going to die. Let's count our days that we can have a heart of wisdom. Let's go towards that day knowing that God has prepared a city for us on the opposite side of it. Because of Jesus, let me make this point crystal clear. Because of Jesus, death is no longer a wall. It's no longer a perishing into, it's not a perishing into nothingness. 
death is, a, is the gateway into the presence of the Lord. It's really good news. It's really good news. So let's go towards that day. Let's go towards our rest and faith. Um, let's, pre- let's prepare for it. Not because of what we have done. And knowing that that city's been prepared for us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. So I invite you to prepare for your death, trusting that God will perfect all things according to his good will. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.